Welcome back, everyone, to Masters of the Matrix. Today, I have with me a very special guest, Sophia Renea Morales, who is a healer, intuitive, a practical mystic, a hypnotherapist, and spiritual teacher. She is also the host of Sovereign Self at Voice America, which airs on Mondays at 4 p.m. Pacific. Welcome to the show, Sophia. Well, well, thank you so much for having me, Greg. I'm so excited to be here. Masters of the universe. I don't know that I feel like I completely live into that. <laughs> well, it's Even Masters of to... the Matrix is kind of wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Masters of, of the Universe, like uh like the He-Man, hey, in the eighties. Um yeah. I, I you know and, and I named the show because I, I, I was very inspired by people that are there are striving to be their best, right? To really be the masters of their reality. And this is why I, I host people such as yourself that have really have gone through, you know, challenges and health challenges and whatever kind of challenges and have rose above it and have now left sort of this place where you ins help inspire others, you inspire me. And this is just a wonderful place to share these experiences and the wisdom. And yeah, and I, I love that concept when the, the title came to me. I have a guy who, who looks for podcasts for me and he's like, I put you on Masters of the Matrix. I'm like, wow, okay, this is like for the energy transmuters, <laughs> some of those <laughs> gifted types who really, uh, what I want to say, who can dial into that, you know what, we really can form our reality in a really direct sort of way. When we set we our totally minds can. to it. And when we accept that we're not just this limited being in this little tiny package. That's right. That's exactly it. It's all about expansion and, and letting go what no longer serves us. And through our challenges, we can help inspire those that are going through the challenges that we have once gone through ourselves. And one thing that really connected me with you is, and we spoke about this before the recording, was that we both share... Um, a similar history in where we were working before, and that is in IT, information technology, for those that don't know. And so what's interesting about this, it's a very left brain world and working with <sighs> zeros and ones and logic. And you tend to work with people that are thinking that way. And yeah, so well, I, and people who don't have a lot of what I want to say, EQ to go with their IQ, oh, exactly. because they never needed it, right? <laughs> That's exactly right. You don't you don't really need it in that way. You can essentially be a, a robot um, and, you know, love them to death. But I've worked with many of them. And I always felt there was early in my career, such a challenge. But as I got older, I, I looked at it as an opportunity to sort of spread that EQ, as you were saying, that emotional quotient mm -hmm. of, of compassion and love. And it was such a really uh, I looked at it like a test and a test that um you know, I obviously passed because here I am now, um, you know, working full time and what I really love doing. And so I kind of want to dive into that with you a little bit. Like, so you went from a data center manager in IT and then something happened to you. Can you briefly talk about what happened there? Uh, it's not brief. I'll start there. <laughs> <laughs> and it was actually kind of a series of things that happened to me. Uh, when I was in corporate and a data center manager in the Fortune 100 in banking, which means it, 
IT is already pressure, but you start running systems where the penalties and interest for the system being down are more than you plan to ever make in your entire career in a handful of minutes, the, the pressure is like through the roof. And one of the things that I discovered as I was in this world and eliminating the problems that happened every night and some of the things that took me very quickly up the ladder of success, what I learned was the things that really are satisfying to me, that made me really happy, had nothing to do with the things I was doing in my day-to-day -day life, which is eliminating the system's problems so that I can sleep through the night instead of being woken up at 2 a.m. going, this thing is down again. And <laughs> like, okay, let's, let's just take care of the stuff we can't control. Right. And so it was sort of self-defense I was doing in my job <laughs> so that I would continue to have a life and be able to get rest and this sort of thing. Um, but one of the things that I discovered when I was in this world of IT and we were part of a major bank you would recognize the name and I don't share it because I don't need the liability that comes along with that. <laughs> uh, but you would know it. It's a household name. And the thing I discovered as we're sitting around, because it's like feast or famine in, in the data center, it's either all going really well and you're bored out of your mind or everything's on fire. <laughs> you get... Of course. You know, that's kind of how life is. And it was one of these boring days we were sitting around and I discovered that while we're all employed by this big name financial institution, there are people in the data center who do not have 401ks, who don't know how to budget their money, who are upside down in credit card debt, who've got really unfortunate mortgages. Um, and I'm like, there is something like seriously wrong with this picture. Um, and I've always known that it's not like built into our educational system, but you would think being employed at one of the foremost financial institutions of the world, that your employees might perhaps have some way to get more education on what it takes to win at the game of money. And so I decided that was wrong and I trotted my way on down to the nearest branch because I know they have financial education packages that they put out for different corporations or whatever for their employees to participate in. So let's start at home, right? Sat down with the branch manager and she says, oh, we never get clients or anything out of that stuff. We don't really do that stuff anymore. It's not really working for us. And I said, I hear you, you know, you've got quotas you have to make and this kind of stuff. I totally feel that, you know, that's, you don't perceive that to be a valuable use of your time. I said, but let's, let's step back from that for just a second. We're working at one of the foremost financial institutions in the world. And don't you think that there's something wrong with this picture that you have 80 people in this data center who don't know how to balance their checkbooks, who've got bad mortgages or upside down in credit card debt, have, haven't started 401ks. Don't you think that's sort of a travesty? And I just let her sit with it for a minute. And she says, you know what? You're right. I'm like, this is what I want to do. I want to organize a brown bag lunch series, you know, like one every couple of weeks where you can come if you're interested in the topic and learn, you know, how to 
create a budget, how to balance a checkbook, you know, what's important when you're looking for insurance, you know, what should you think about when you're starting a 401k, when should you start it, you know, these sorts of topics. And she was great. She worked with me on it. And it was like the most satisfying thing that I did when I was in corporate. And it got me hooked on helping. Now, this was still a good decade before I ever even approached awakening, if you will. Mm-hmm. But it did change the trajectory of my life from a back office kind of person. And the next uh, positions that I sought out in the corporate world were much more customer facing and involved with that financial education process, because I felt it was really it's a critical piece that's missing from our educational system. And unless you have a family where that knowledge has already been discovered and is being passed along to you actively because you will never passively absorb this. You have to really seek it out. Uh, You miss out on that opportunity and you end up with a bunch of financial handcuffs, which keep you from doing the things that you want to do because you've made these commitments. You've made a commitment to a house perhaps that's more than you can afford, or you've gotten into a lot of credit card debt and it limits your choices and it limits your ability to be flexible. And so one of the keys to that is the education. And so that was a big thing for me. And I think an important shift closer to what my sole purpose is um, but it took, took illness and disability to get me to open up and be more broad-minded towards things that were not clearly replicatable and scientifically mm-hmm. empirically based. <laughs> <laughs> I find that really interesting because, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of us that are going through this and have no idea what's really going on on the veil beyond what we see and touch and can explain scientifically. And, you know, this is why it's such a a fascinating conversation with you because shortly after that, I guess, so you really got an illness. You really got brought to the ground where you couldn't even, you couldn't even get out of, get out of bed. Well, and truthfully at that stage, I already had the illness. I just hadn't been able to figure out what it was and it hadn't gotten to the point that it stopped me from functioning. Okay. Um, and it was probably, let me think about the timeline on this. From the point that I discovered, oh, you know, I'm going to move more into the financial education front end of things. It was probably another six years before I got so sick that I really couldn't hold down a job anymore. Wow. Um, yeah, so, so it, it, it wasn't, wasn't just the moment where it was just boom. Yeah, it wasn't it like was, sudden it, boom, yeah. here you go, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so now, you, coming out of it was more of a sudden boom thing, but on the way in, it was like decades in the making. Mm-hmm. And I d- it's not that I had completely ignored it, although I can't say it was really a front burner issue. It was one of these things that I would go into the doctor every couple of years and go, I am really freaking tired all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm coming down with stuff a lot more frequently than it seems like the people around me are. What's going on? And so I was kind of continuously pursuing this. I I know there's something wrong, but I can't put my finger on quite what it is. And they tested me for practically everything. I was tested for 
Lyme and rheumatoid arthritis and fibromyalgia and Epstein-Barr and uh, lupus, some all of anything that had to do with some kind of way your autoimmune system has gone wacky, they tested me for it. Right. And it always came back that they couldn't find anything. And so after I'd been in this cycle for a while, I came to the conclusion that I probably needed a functional medicine doctor because my background is in science, actually. IT was the, the secondary path when I decided no. <laughs> I didn't want to spend my life in the lab. It's like, okay, what else do I know how to do? <laughs> <laughs> and so I... I know how to read the the really dense scientific papers and that kind of stuff. So it's it's not intimidating to me to like dig into my own stuff. And the what I knew and understood about medicine is this. You've got your general practitioner who's supposed to be the big person, big picture person, right? Who mm -hmm. kind of looks at everything and is supposed to quarterback your health. And then you've got all these specialists that they can kind of, you know, call into the game. I need somebody who can run a long pass or, <laughs> you know, whatever it is, a special tackle, right, to use some sports analogy. Uh, and that's how that's supposed to work, right? And so they go, okay, it looks like we're going to need a specialist in this. They call the dude in, you go off and you do your thing and dude is supposed to find the answer. And if dude doesn't find the answer, then it's back to your quarterback again, who's supposed to go, okay, well, if it's not that, it might be this other thing. Let's find another guy in another silo. And so I'd been to all the silos and I came to the conclusion that the quarterback on my team didn't understand enough about the entire system, the entire organism. They were too specialized. They were too technical technicalized to make up my own word. Um, and they really didn't look at the whole interaction of the thing. The other thing that I discovered about medicine, and it really creeps me out to this day, my master's degree is in biophysics, okay, which is a combination of biochemistry and physics. And so I know a lot of biochemistry. And when I was in school, I would go to doctors and, you know, when you're getting to know the doctor, they ask you what you do. Well, I'm, you know, getting my degree in biochemistry. And they would say to me without fail, biochemistry almost flunked me out of med school. <laughs> and then they would reach for their prescription pad to prescribe a drug that's going to affect my biochemistry in some way that they've already admitted they don't understand hardly at all. They understood yeah. it just enough to graduate. Yeah. And that freaked me out in a major sort of way. And so I was kind of grateful when I went into corporate and I could stop mentioning it. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> sometimes it's better to not know uh, in terms of, <laughs> of feeling comfortable in, in what's going on. And so I decided I needed a doctor who really did understand biochemistry and functional medicine doctors tend to understand the whole picture, how the systems interact with each other and why your dry flaky skin actually has something to do with your liver. Right. And so I went looking for a functional medicine doctor who takes insurance. This is like seeking a unicorn. 
<laughs> because they don't want to try to even play with the insurance companies because the insurance companies understand the quarterback and all the silos and they will only what do I want to say? Respectfully acknowledge the results of certain procedures and certain tests and certain traditional treatment approaches. And the functional medicine doctor does not want to put on those kinds of handcuffs that come with taking insurance. And so I looked for quite a while to find one. And um, I did find one eventually, but I think before we go down that path, I will say that, or comment that I was a tough case as far, not medically, but as far as moving into and accepting that there is more than this concrete world. I was really hard case <laughs> because I, there were several invitations that came along as I'm going through this process into a broader perspective, if you will, on the world and how it really runs and the spaces where it's so much more than two plus two equals four. Sometimes two plus two with a certain intention equals something more like seven. <laughs> Right. <laughs> but the scientist in me was not willing to accept or go there. And it actually went kicking and screaming. And one of the things I've observed about your soul, when it's time for you to wake up, it will kind of whisper and invite nicely and put little things in front of you to open your curiosity. Books will jump off of shelves for you to, to look at and interact with. Uh, and you have a choice. We all have free will. Do I want to pick up that book and explore that thought, whatever comes with that book? Or do I want to put it back on the shelf and go, geez, they should shelve these things better, right? <laughs> Yeah. There's always that choice. And so I was reshelving books. <laughs> I was ignoring all these little invitations. And your soul will get more aggressive with you when you ignore these little invitations. And when I look at my story, I look at it and I say that basically my story is a reverse Job. If you know the story of Job from the Bible, uh, he was very devout and very faithful to God. And the devil came along and said, well, he wouldn't be that way if he didn't have all these blessings that you showered on him. And God's like, no, I believe his heart is pure and, and he's faithful to me because he, he knows who I am and, and is faithful to me because of that. And so he gave the devil permission to take away all the blessings. And he lost everything. He lost his health. He lost his wealth. He lost his family. He lost his home. He lost the whole bill. Uh, and he remained faithful to God and eventually got all the blessings back. And so the whole point of that story was to see if he would lose his faith. Well, the whole point of my story was to see if I could find some. And so mm -hmm. gradually I lost my faith. I lost my health. I lost my career. Uh, my husband lost his job and we were in this space where of zero income. And I started to have to like make some very difficult choices because you can't budget zero. There's just 
it doesn't work. <laughs> I don't care what financial tools you have, you cannot budget zero income. And so I had to make some very difficult choices. And we agreed that we, that the moment had arrived that we had to declare bankruptcy. And I, I began to be shunted down a series of what I call impossible moments. I, I think of them as running at wall moments. And one of these running at wall moments that arrived for us was my husband's career. The industry that he's in had changed pretty substantially over the prior decade. And he had come to the conclusion that he needed to get an additional advanced degree to go with his medicinal chemistry. And his he wanted either uh, an MD uh, what do they call it? A business B, a business degree, MBA. That's what I'm looking for. An MBA right. or a Juris Doctor. One of those three things was going to be needed to take him in the direction he needed to go. And so we needed to declare bankruptcy and send him back to grad school at the same time. Wow. Those are should be mutually exclusive choices, right? <laughs> you can do one or you can do the other. Both doesn't mm -hmm. seem like it should be possible. But I'd been led to a bankruptcy attorney who found a way to make that happen. But, oh, wow. Okay. Awesome. And so great. We'll go down that road. We got him enrolled in grad school. We still don't have income. And I'm talking with the attorney, the bankruptcy attorney, and he says, we need to put you in a payer bankruptcy because you have a self-directed IRA and the trustee for the chapter seven bankruptcy that we just wipe out all the debts and you start over bankruptcy. Uh, he likes to bust those. And so if you go down that road, you'll literally end up with nothing because he'll find a way to break that open and take even what ought to be protected under the bankruptcy laws. So you need to go into a payer bankruptcy, full stop. I'm like, well, okay. We'll do that. So we're going into a payer bankruptcy with zero income <laughs> and continuing to move forward towards these places that look impossible, right? And my husband got inter inter invited by a buddy of his to a professional conference because he needed help with his booth. So my husband agrees to go and help him man the booth because it gives him an opportunity to network and do that kind of stuff. And while he's at this conference, he hooks up with a guy that he's worked with previously. who's like, I really want to expand my business in this consulting direction. And I know you have experience with that. Let's partner up. And so he came back from the conference with exactly the dollar amount to get us the shortest payer bankruptcy possible. So suddenly that's working out. Okay, fabulous. Uh, but we have a detail because we haven't filed our bankruptcy yet and the job is in another state. And if you change states, the rules change. So one of us has to stay while he goes. So I have to stay in Arizona. He gets to go. And now we have to figure out how we house him without adding money to the budget because the budget is already turned into the trustee and they're not going to approve additional expenditures because they're in charge of that train now. 
And so I sent an email to everybody I knew. Fortunately, he was going back to an area we'd lived in previously. And I'd been in outside sales. So I had a long list of people that I knew. And I said, here's the deal. My husband and I had agreed we weren't going to try and hide any of this. So we let it all hang out. It's like, here's the situation. We're in bankruptcy. I'm very sick. He's got this opportunity. Uh, I'm looking for a guest room, a shelf in your refrigerator, an internet hookup, and a place for him to park his car. And you can name your number. He's very quiet. You won't know he's there. You'll appreciate having him around. He's a helpful kind of guy. And he's allergic to cats, so no cats. And I got a lot of no's, as you might expect. Uh, but I got one yes. And I got a yes that I did not expect. It was a neighbor who had a condo in an over 50 retirement community. His, her mother had passed away and she didn't have time to be able to look at after this empty condo. And at that time, there was no way you could have sold it. It was completely upside down. You were limited in who you could sell it to and she can't rent it to anybody. There's restrictions on it that say, you just can't rent this thing. And she says, it would, it would be a blessing to me if he would come live there and take care of it. All I want him to do is pay for whatever utilities he uses. Like, oh. that's my dollar amount. <laughs> Imagine that. Okay. Now I haven't, I haven't even woken up at this point and magical stuff is happening. This is my soul kind of preparing me that, you know, the impossible is really possible. Hello. Yeah. Yeah. And so at some point we get the bankruptcy filed and I'm able to join him now in this condo that we were unexpectedly provided with. And now I have an opportunity to have health insurance again. And I'm back on my search for this functional medicine doctor. And I found my unicorn in Indiana, a functional medicine doctor who would take insurance. And it was a real blessing to me. He like did all all of the tests and they when a functional medicine doctor says we're going to run some tests and take some blood uh be prepared with a transfusion afterwards because <laughs> they're serious about taking blood they bring the whole rack and we found a few things that were problems for me it, i inadvertently found the answer to why i struggle with chronic depression organic depression and the lovely thing is I don't anymore because there are ways to counteract uh, the reason for my organic depression that have nothing to do with antidepressants. It's like, yes, Jesus, mm -hmm. thank you. Mm -hmm. um, found a few things like that. And he came back and he said, I think we should dig deeper on Lyme disease. And I went, I've been tested for that. And the test said, no. And he says, um, there's something you need to know about the Lyme test. And most physicians out there don't know or understand this. Uh, there are two things that make a test useful and valuable. The first is it needs to be super specific. So if it comes back positive, it is only for the thing that the test is for. It doesn't come back positive for something else. 
So that's specific. And then it has a certain sensitivity level that's necessary. And so you want one that is sufficiently sensitive that it'll find really low levels of infection. And that's where the Lyme disease test comes up short. It is not sufficiently sensitive. So if you get a positive Lyme disease test, yes, absolutely, you have it. If you get a negative Lyme disease test, it doesn't mean you don't have it. It just means they can't detect it. And so I'm like, oh, well, in light of that information, it's probably a good idea to see what else we can do. And there are a couple of other tests that can be done. And I came back screamingly positive on both of those. And so it's like, hey, hallelujah, we have our answer, right? And at this point, I have gotten so sick that I'm not remembering what's going on earlier in the day. I'm losing large chunks of my vocabulary. Um, and I'm at the point that I really literally can't work. I mean, I go into the kitchen to make a 30 minute meal, really simple 30 minute meal. And it takes me three hours because I can't remember what I'm doing, why I'm in the kitchen, what the next step is. It's a, a real struggle. Yeah. And so I'm in a bad place. So when we got this answer, it was like, oh, thank you, Jesus. There's a way out of this jail, right? And the doctor says, yeah, I've got this. I've got this protocol that we do. It's 70% successful. I'm going, yeah, yeah. And he gives me this stack of papers. It's a two-year-long protocol. And it's rotating exotic antibiotics and clearing IVs and antibiotics that only come on IVs. And it's two years of this and all the doctor's visits and stuff that go along with it. And I'm like, well, thank God this guy's covered under insurance, right? So I take this plan home with me. And the next call is, of course, the insurance company. How much of this are you going to cover? And I called him up. And the first words she said after I shared my diagnosis, that there's a plan and I want to understand my benefits are, we don't believe in chronic Lyme disease. Wow. And I'm like, well, isn't that freaking convenient for you? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Part of the test. Yeah, it's Mm -hmm. like, oh my God. And so I'm in this space where it's like, well, now how I'm going to make this happen? Now I'm in the ultimate, There are, it's all brick walls and I don't see an exit here because we're in a bankruptcy, can't get a loan. My husband's going to school full-time, he's working full-time and he's taking care of me. I'm unable to make dinner, let alone hold down employment. I have no idea how this is supposed to happen if the insurance company is completely opted out. How do I make this happen? You know, I ran my calculator a few times on this list of stuff because he put kind of ballpark costs around some of this. And I never got the same total, but they were all in the neighborhood of twenty-seven to $28,000 for the first year. Wow. No way. Mm. There's no way this is going to work in my budget. And I'm like... 
busting my brain. What am I going to do? Now, I was raised by a German and Norwegian, and my parents were very clear with me. When you're 18, you are on your own. Do not expect help from us. Do not expect to come back and live in the basement. This is not a thing you are responsible for yourself at 18. Full stop. We're not paying for college. We're not doing any of that. Okay. And so for many decades, I completely did my thing and took care of myself. But I thought perhaps this might be the one moment, right, where an exception could be made. And so I called my father and explained that, hey, we found an answer. I know why I'm sick. We have a solution to get me better. It's got pretty good odds of actually working. And the bank of dad was empty. Yeah. And that was like my really, really low point. Yeah. And I went to bed that night and attempted to meditate because at this point I'm not sleeping. Lime is super toxic when it's alive. And when you start killing it off, it gets much, much worse. And they had already started me on some antibiotics. So we have gone from not functioning to like blithering, laying in the bed, uselessness. And and you hurt everywhere. And it's it's like the worst case of flu you've ever had. Minus the fever, but you still hurt like a son of a gun. And at this point, my brain is not going through sleep cycles anymore. I did discover if I can calm myself and meditate, it helps me feel more refreshed in the morning. But that night, there was no way. My brain was like this trapped squirrel hitting all of these same walls over and over and over again. Well, maybe I can get alone. Well, maybe there's a this, maybe there's a that. And it's all the same walls and I'm not seeing any way out. And it was around 3 a.m. that I just didn't have any more energy for it. It wasn't even as active as surrender. It was just, I just stopped. And I decided there was one thing on my list that I hadn't looked at or in any way acknowledged was only one other place I could think to go. And that was to God. Now I hadn't talked to him in a good long while, like since I was knee high to grasshopper. And what I had been taught about God in my childhood, I didn't agree with on some really fundamental level of myself. because I was raised in a very fundamentalist uh, section of religion and fundamentalists are never empathic. (laughs) They never focus on the good aspects of God. But inside of myself, I had a conviction that God, real God, not the religion made up God, was compassionate and was empathetic. And was all all kinds of wonderful, beautiful things that the God they talked about in my my Sunday school class was clearly not. So I decided I was going to talk to that God. 
And I said, God, I will do anything to get better. And I meant it with everything I was. And I didn't even really expect an answer, but I got one right away in the form of a very small voice in the back of my mind that said, really, anything? Anything doesn't have a lot of edges on it. (laughs) And so I sat with that a long time and what I knew in the center of my being about God. And I decided that God would not ask me to lie or cheat or steal or treat other people badly or become an axe murderer. And those are really my edges when it comes down to it. So to be very clear, I said, God, for you, I will do anything. And I got my first miracle because I actually slept that night. And I woke in the morning with a very clear understanding that I had to go get one of these clearing IVs. Even though I had no idea where I was going to find the 250 bucks to pay for it. And as I'm at the doctor's office getting this IV, the doctor walks into the infusion room, which is not a place he goes. So I figured he was sent to talk to me. So I waved him over and explained that I'm now a cash pay client. Insurance is completely out of the picture because the last thing she said before I hung up the phone is, by the way, your doctor is no longer in network. (laughs) Jesus, that's all it needs. And I explained all of that to him and he smiled at me. I'm like, I don't know why he thinks this is good information. And he says, you have all the choices now. Like, oh, really? Okay, cool. Tell me about my choices. And he says, well, we have this naturopath herbalist on staff that has an incredible track record with parasitic infections and Lyme disease is a parasitic infection. Now, Miss Scientific, two plus two equals four, just two days previously would have gone, an herbalist, you're gonna send me to a freaking herbalist, (laughs) okay? (laughs) Instead, I said, okay, great. How do I get an appointment with him? because his appointments are half the price of the doctor and he treats it with herbs, which are 30 to $40 a bottle instead of IVs and exotic antibiotics that are hundreds and thousands of dollars. It's like, okay, well, it's a price point I can at least imagine reaching. And so I got the appointment to see this guy. And this is where I tend to get really sucked into telling the spiritual aspect of the story and forget to tell you the end of the physical aspect of the story. Okay. Um, in three months, I was cle- I was cured of my Lyme disease going to this herbalist. Okay. Wow. But the really significant thing that happened at the herbalist was someone left a book in the waiting room. And that particular day he was running behind. So I was looking for something to do. And this book says the emotion code on the front. Hmm. Now, I mentioned I was raised by a German and a Norwegian. 
if you're familiar with either of those ethnicities, what they do with emotions is they pretend that you have none. You push them down as deep as you can (laughs) and you do that and you never, ever, ever admit to having any of them. Even the happy emotions, you can have a tiny bit of those, but not too much because you might make somebody else feel bad. Um, And so I never got good instruction around how to work with and deal with my emotions, let alone to identify what they are. And I'd spent a couple of decades in talk therapy, but that hadn't done anything to, what do I want to say, take the heat and the ickiness out of some of the stuff that had been stuffed down over the years. So I wanted to know what this guy knew if he's got the code for emotions. And so I'm getting started on the book and somebody came back for it. I'm like, well, damn, now I got to go buy the book. (laughs) (laughs) And being the project manager, practical IT, two plus two equals four kind of girl, I liked the fact um, that he used muscle testing as how he determined, you know, what the emotion is. Do we need to know more about it? Because as a scientist, I'm comfortable with a black box. And what a black box is, for those of you who are not scientists, uh, it's a process that you don't understand how it works, but you can prove that it reliably spits out a predictable result on the other end. And so even though I couldn't explain to you how muscle testing actually gets to truth, I can prove that it does get to truth. And so that was acceptable to me as a scientist. And so I'm going through his process and it seems to be actually helping, you know, some of this stuff that I had triggers on that kind of thing is it's working. And so I get a little farther into the book, I'm literally using it as an instruction manual. It's not like I'm going to read this and then see what I think. No, it's like I'm going to actually try this stuff out. I do experiments on myself. I'm a scientist. (laughs) (laughs) And so that seems to be working. I get to this section on heart walls. And I know without muscle testing, I have one of those because I make a conscious decision or at least back in that day, I make a constant decision about whether I'm going to let you behind it or I'm not going to let you behind it. And so I did eventually muscle test around it and discovered I didn't have just one, I had three. And he made a really good point for taking it down. So I started methodically taking it down. Miss Project Manager, it's like, okay, I can do 10 emotions a day and it's, you know, 150 emotions in this wall. It'll take me a little over two weeks, right? I've got it all figured out. (laughs) And so I'm methodically taking this heart wall down. And as I'm taking this heart wall down, weird shit starts happening. Things that make the scientist absolutely nuts. I start seeing crossed over dead people. I start seeing angels and ascended masters and little fairies in the backyard and the devas of all kinds of different life forms. And it's like, whoo, girl, you got more brain damage than you knew. (laughs) Is this in your waking? Your waking? This is in my waking moments. This is is not like I'm seeing this in my sleep. This is like I... I wake up and I roll over and the lady who owned the condo before us is sitting there looking at wow. me and she didn't like me, by the way. Do they look physical <laughs> at that point or was it more like ethereal? 
It was a very ethereal look to me. I don't, I don't ever see them like they're another body. I see the energy impression of them. Um, I'm not a particularly visual person. That's not usually the first thing that comes to me. The first thing that comes to me is like the knowing and the understanding of what's there before the visual arrives. And when the visual arrives for me, it's more like I'm remembering how something looks than actually seeing it, if that makes sense. Right. Because I'm a clear cog, I think that's part of the reason that the visual shows up for me that way. Interesting. So th- th- and that's scary. not a word I'd have ever used back in that day. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> now, when so you saw these things, that... was it frightening? Were you like, oh my um, God, I'm going crazy. This is not real. This is real. It was, my fear was more around, I'm losing my marbles mm. and I'm going to end up committed than it was that I'm seeing this disembodied person or I'm seeing this angel because there's a part of me in that moment that has not accepted that this is a real thing. This is to my scientifically trained mind, a hallucination that's happening. And so I wasn't ever scared of what I was seeing or facing uh, because there was a part of me that did not buy into its reality in that moment, if that makes sense. It does. So at this time, I'm like, I'm losing my marbles, and this is what I'm scared of. Uh, And so that was happening. And then I was seeing things from the past and the future. And the scientists took that and went, (laughs) you have an incredible imagination. And there's no way that you can ever verify or validate that any of that's the truth. You know, so Mm -hmm. we're just not going (laughs) to. Yeah, that, that doesn't even rank. And so the, these things keep kind of amping up and becoming bigger. And I have noticed when I go into a store now, I've always been kind of a sensitive person. Like I can't, I couldn't watch Lassie when I was a little girl because Timmy's down the well and who knows if they're going to understand dog talk well enough to come and rescue Timmy, right? <laughs> and so I've always been kind of sensitive in that regard. But this is a whole different category of sensitive. I walk into Walmart and it's like this body slam of energy that hits me. Like I've walked into this rock concert that's at full volume. Mm. And it's like, wow, this is this is hard. It's, it's getting really hard to go places where there are people. And I'm I'm feeling some of their feelings and the aches in their bodies and this kind of stuff. And I'm like, wow. Okay. And there's this thought that that's what's occurring. And then the scientist is like, oh, no, no, you're just, you're empathizing with them and your body already hurts because you're still recovering from all this stuff, right? So the scientist always has these explanations for what it probably is. And I'm a people watcher. And so like when I'm in Walmart or whatever, you'll see somebody every now and again, and you'll be like, wow, I wonder what led to them making that decision, that that decision they just made was logical for them. Because we never make a decision for ourselves that's not logical for us. And so I ask those questions in my mind on a regular basis because I'm curious about other people. And I was getting the answer to that question. I would say, I wonder what led to them thinking that that's the logical choice. And then I would see this series of events that led to the context where that is their logical decision. 
which is like the ultimate TMI. I did not need to know this. It was an idle curiosity. I didn't honestly want that answer. And so again, the scientist is like, well, that overactive creative imagination again. And so I keep writing this stuff off. And then the next iteration of this, I, I had been in a meditation because this has been important to me in terms of like recovering my health. I've been visualizing the, the parasites being released and, and this kind of thing. And one afternoon I was doing this and I, I saw this intense blue glow and I had this knowledge that it was Archangel Michael and when I saw this archangel energy, spontaneously out of my mouth comes this prayer in Hebrew. Now, I'm a Midwestern, German, Norwegian, Protestant raised. I've got no exposure to that ever except maybe one time in college where I took a comparative religion course and we went to one Seder. And so that's what the scientists grabbed onto. It's like, oh, goody. <laughs> you remembered it from that one time back in college where you sat in a Seder where you didn't understand a word that went on. You remembered that entire prayer. Boy, that is some kind of reaching right there. <laughs> But that's what we went with because we are logical and replicatable and it's not possible that it could be anything other than that. And your soul will not give up on you even when you're bloody minded like I was. <laughs> <laughs> and my soul went, okay, you need something that is documented and evidentiary and that you can lay your hands on. Great, we will arrange something for you. And I came home from the grocery store one day and I see my neighbor. She's helping her husband into the house. And when I say helping, she is staggering under his weight and he's doubled over in a great deal of pain. They're both in their mid 80s and Frail does not begin to describe her build. So fine, the groceries can go to pieces. I'm going to help them in the house. I go over and we get them in the house. And as we're going in, she's saying that she's really worried for him. His kidneys have gotten so bad. She's got to go get an emergency appointment. So fine. Yeah, I will stay here with him. You go do what you need to do. And so I'm with him in the living room and there's not much I can actually do other than keep him company. I'm holding his hands kidney pain, whether you're standing, sitting, it doesn't matter. So we're standing in the living room. I'm holding his hands and his eyes close and I can see his lips are moving. And I know them to be what to call them, the best versions of Christians. They have a very personal relationship with God. They've spent their entire lives in service, helping other people. They're not judgmental. They, they're not the kind of Christians that they're like, well, you have to believe like me or you're going, no, they're completely loving, accepting of, of whatever your path is. And so I know he's, I know he's praying and it feels 
private. I don't really want to stare at him. So I went ahead and closed my eyes. And in my mind's eye, I see this little flame. And it looks like a pilot light that's on the edge of going out. You know how they kind of dance and flicker before they go poof. Mm -hmm. And I'm given a knowing that that is where he's at with his life force. And I'm quite confident that the scientist didn't come up with this question. I said, uh, is there something we can do about that? I didn't even say it out loud. I just said it in my mind. I didn't even put any label or understanding around who I said it to. I just said, is there something we can do about that? And the instant I finished that question, that little tiny flickery flame became this roaring bonfire. And I don't know how big it got because he dropped my hands and my eyes flew open to see what's going on. And he says, are you a healer? And I'm looking around to see who he's talking to because this is no, 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 no. Don't, don't bring that word into my into my space. And I was safe from having to answer because his wife came back. We got the appointment. We got to go right now. So we hustle him out to the car and I went and hid in my house for two days. Well, the scientist had a hissy fit. And after two days, I had convinced myself that nothing had actually happened. And that I was really bad neighbor because in the Midwest, you're raised to help your neighbors when they're in distress, you shovel their walk, you bring over soup or whatever it is you can do, right? And I haven't even checked on them. And I've convinced myself that she's planning a funeral or she's at the ICU and basically doing a death wash. So I finally guilted myself next door. I came over and I tapped on the door. And she answered it. Okay. She's not planning a funeral. <laughs> and she's not in the hospital. This might be good things. And she smiled at me. I'm like, okay, another check in this might be good things column. Uh, how are you doing? How's, how's Jay? Oh, I'm so glad you're here. Come on in. You know, he's got so many questions for you. I'm like, uh-oh, I'm already over the doorstep. Now I have to go in. All right, I'm committed. I'm going in. And I walk in the living room. He's kicked back in his sparkle lounger. He's got his drink and his remote and his book, and he's looking fat and happy. Like, yeah. okay. How you doing, Jay? He says, you know, it was the strangest thing. By the time I got to the doctor's office, I was feeling pretty good. And they ran me through the usual battery of tests. And my kidney function came back normal. Haven't seen that in decades. Wow. Wow. And that's the moment when the scientist had to sit down and shut the fuck up. Because now we have <laughs> documentary evidence yeah. Yeah. of something that the kidney doctor probably went, we might need to run these tests again, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's not the direction kidney disease goes in the accepted medical world. Um, and I really had only one explanation for that. And that is that he asked for a miracle 
And when I said, can we do something? I agreed to stand as the channel of that miracle came through. Beautiful. And that was the moment that I had to accept that perhaps this anything I agreed to might have something to do with all this strangeness that's been going on the last couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. No doubt. Wow. So I did not go easily into this world. That's powerful. So what were the questions he had for you? Oh, he he wanted to know well, how long have I been a healer, and then oh, what was it I actually did, and and he asked me for some some kind of a reading for something. I forget what it was. I don't remember half of them because it's like I don't even know what that thing you just asked me for is. You know more about this in this moment than I do. And so it was sort of the beginning of my own quest for education around, well, what if, if, here goes the scientific theorem again, let's propose that this is in fact what the deal is, that there is this other world going on. We'll accept that. What interpretation what is the woo interpretation of this weirdness that's been going on as opposed to what the scientific mind has been proposing is the write-off that didn't quite fit the circumstances. And so that's when I started to learn about empaths and highly sensitive people and the clairs and the ability to shield yourself um, and to tune in selectively to energies and to tune out from energies if they're too much. And so I started to really educate myself on A, what is it? And B, how do I really begin to to deal with it and cope with it? Because my world had gotten sense, it was sensory overload in that moment, right? Because not only do you have your usual sight and your hearing and all that kind of stuff, but now you've got your second sight and your knowing and your hearing and it can get really loud and overwhelming in a hurry. So with your your husband also being a intellectual scientist. Oh yes, you put your finger right on the other concern, right? That must have been pretty interesting. <laughs> It it was really intimidating. And I have to say, it took me a good six months before I was ready to even open that conversation with him. Because I was a very logical two plus two equals four kind of girl. You got to show me where's the proof, where's the evidence? You know, do we have the right sample size? All of these things are very normal in my world and very normal in his world also. And so I was concerned about his ability to accept uh, his wife having this much more expanded viewpoint now. And I have to say, he took it much better than I do, than I did, uh, because I think I can thank my mother-in-law for this, because she has always been a very tuned-in kind of person and talks to her angels and expects miracles to arrive and thanks the angels for her amazing parking spots and <laughs> and that sort of thing. So I think the fact that he was raised with a woman who was more dialed in, it was much easier for him to accept that his scientific wife would now suddenly also exhibit these traits <laughs> than it was for the wife herself. <laughs> so funny so it with is. your husband did he now like okay was he actually interested in what you were seeing what you were hearing 
what you were experiencing? Did it take him some time to say, okay, I actually believe you now? Does he? Um, he, he believed me, I believe, from the get-go. He's never questioned what I've shared with him, at least not to me directly. Um, and as far as his curiosity and involvement, it kind of varies. Um, one one of the things that I did, and I think it's fairly common with people who've newly awakened, we want to go around and fix everybody else, right? And so there was this part of me that was like, well, let me help him out with, you know, and fill in the blank, whatever the thing is. Mm-hmm. And his higher self was really firm with me when I went in there to meddle the first time. And his higher self is like, you were not invited. You will not come into and mess with and do anything of this ilk unless you are invited. So you will wait for the invitation. I did not like that, but I did respect it. Interesting. Uh, And so periodically he will invite me in. Okay. Uh, He did ask me to teach him how to meditate at one point. And so I taught him how to meditate. And then a few years farther down the road, he was struggling with some childhood kind of stuff. And he invited me in to work with him on that particular issue. And so I think we've done two actual healing sessions together. And I'm always very cognizant of the fact that I need to take off my wife hat and put it over there (laughs) and put on my healer hat and you know leave the wifely concern to the side because she doesn't belong there that's not who was invited in right um so yeah occasionally i will be invited in he is supportive of me doing what i do yeah uh, he's he's awesome. promotes my radio show he hands out my business cards this uh-huh. kind of stuff um and occasionally we do actually do work together that's amazing I want to touch on the fact that I read somewhere that you had a Kundalini experience, a Kundalini awakening. Yeah. Um, All of the psychic senses turned on. I didn't know what it was or understand what it was in the moment. Um, Yeah, it's... Like, were you lying in bed? Did, Did your body start to energize? Like, what was that experience like? It was a gradual unfolding. It wasn't one of these like bang, it's open and it shoots out the top of my head sort of thing. It unfolded over the course of several weeks. Um, And it's like, how to describe it? It's a level of aliveness. That's like a hundred times your most vibrant I'm alive kind of moment that you typically have. How to put it? It didn't like stay there, if that makes sense. Or at least my perception is it didn't stay there. You adjust to new levels as you go along. And... So it's kind of hard to go, I think it went away, but I don't know that it went away. I think I got used to it. Right. That makes sense. It does. 
So for those that don't know what a Kundalini awakening is, from my understanding, it's it's the energy that's in your root chakra that's sort of curled three times. And that sort of life force that's sitting there gets uncoiled like a snake, goes up your chakra system and sort of activating and clearing out your and chakras in the order. Eventually blows out the top of your head. I think of it as the god part of you mm -hmm. it's like that divine seed and normally when we come into this world that divine seed is kind of curled up and furled up as you said at the bottom of the at the bottom of the spine and then it will unfold and i've i've had clients that i've helped with this because if you have a spontaneous awakening like that and you haven't done your work. And there are things that can trigger it. Illness is one of the things. Um, drug use can be one of the things. Uh, extreme personal traumas can accidentally, spontaneously trigger it. As opposed to deliberately going through the process to bring it out. Um, it will run into the unprocessed stuff as it's on its way up and out. And so weird things will happen to your body. Um, spontaneous motions and mudras and what I want to call it, the inability to to tolerate input. Like the, the inability for me to go into the grocery store at one point was one, uh, one symptom of that. And so it's, it's important if you would like to bring your kundalini forward to prepare for that, which is why there's this long tradition of we're going to sit and we're going to meditate and we're going to do these movements and, and get ready for this to happen because it's part of clearing that path for it to happen. It's not, it's not a pleasant sensation if you're not ready for it. Mm -hmm. Does it make sense? It does. It does. Yeah. I um, no, I, I definitely resonate with that because uh, it's something that you know I I feel like in some ways I've experienced it in in just extreme amount of energy flowing through my body, but I don't know if I've fully experienced it. And I can tell for somebody out there that I was at the point where like I was my my left brain was like you should be very scared right now what's happening to your body, but my heart was saying trust. <laughs> Trust what's happening you're, to yourself. You're good. Trust. Breathe. And I yeah. just went through it. I went through it and I got through it. And I tell you, if I had freaked out, I've been, I would have been in the hospital. I would have been like, I, I would have thought I was having a heart attack. I would have been like my whole world would have came down. So I can totally yeah. see why you need to have some sort of inner balance. Well, yeah, healing. and it's good to have what I want to say, an external supportive understanding structure that can help mm -hmm. work and guide you through it. Um, the, I, the good thing for me as I was going through it was I pretty quickly accepted that I had this ethereal help that was sitting there. I had a council that I very early on um, got to see and know and experience. And I didn't have a lot of choice. I chose to trust them. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, because I... I really didn't have a lot of other options. I wasn't about to tell my husband this was happening. 
um, you know, the neighbors next door. And I'm definitely not telling my family because they would have definitely put me in the freak house. Um, <laughs> and I think that happens actually to a fair number of people who go through it. Because our society does not understand the difference between true mental health and mental illness and the spiritual experience. And for a long time, I sat with that particular puzzle slash conundrum. It's like, so where where is the line between the aesthetic, ecstatic, divine experience and complete lost your marbles kind of situation. And there is, I believe, a tipping point. And the tipping point between the two is you can have a complete ecstatic divine experience and still understand that there's this 3D world that has certain laws that are going on within it and there's a certain cause and effect. Um, and you can hold both of those. And I think it's when you lose track of one that you run into the trouble. Yeah. And what brings to, to my attention is, is for people that, you know, are going on these ayahuasca ceremonies that they hear about this kind of cool thing that you can do in the jungle and it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of, kind of trendy. Right. And they may not yeah, know what it's yeah. all and you really go about. Down, it's like, I hey. signed up for my ayahuasca trip. Yeah. Let's go. Where's my drink. Yeah. Yeah, and you you want to, you really want to vet the people that are taking you on that trip. Yeah, and, and I think it's because at some point the container too. they hold around that is really important yeah, to whether exactly. it's a healing experience for you or whether it's quite literally a bad trip. Don't go to the McDonald's of uh, ayahuasca sessions. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> some random more. ayahuasca guy on the corner. Don't do it. <laughs> But yeah, I was going to say too, it's like, you know, uh, you know, uh, people that have jumped into that, I've heard horrible stories because they've seen things that they're just not ready for. Like they, yeah. they, they, they yeah. they're expecting to see one thing and yet they see a whole nother world and it just, they come out and it could actually negatively affect them even more. So, you know, if you are going to do something like that, do your research, you know, make sure yeah. that you know what you're getting into, find someone that actually can properly walk you through this ceremony if you are going to decide yeah. to do that because and treat it with a great deal of respect mm -hmm. a great mm -hmm. deal of respect uh one of the things and plant medicine is powerful okay you remember miss oh herbalist right now plant medicine is very powerful and it needs to be dealt with with great respect mm -hmm. um and how you approach it makes a big difference in what the outcome of your experience is. If you have a clear intention for what you want to accomplish with it, if you have vetted someone who knows how to hold a good, safe container, um, I believe it can be a really powerful, transformative, healing sort of a thing to go through. But if you don't go into it with clear intention, and if you don't, clearly that the people who are holding this container yeah you can really cause yourself a lot of damage and a lot of trouble and Absolutely. so yeah that that's that's my words of wisdom on that be very intentional and very clear about who you're working with mm -hmm. so with your psychic abilities 
like you have conversations, you can hear your spirit guides, ascended masters. You can also see them as well. And do you have the ability to sort of close this channel off and on at will? Okay. Well, there's a whole bunch of pieces in there. So let's start with channels. First of all, Uh, we all have psychic giftedness. Okay. Like we all have five senses. You will notice that some people have especially sensitive versions of a particular sense. For example, when we're talking about the concrete grounded five senses, I have a very sensitive sense of smell. My husband, my husband calls me the GC nose, the gas chromatograph nose, because he would come back from the lab. He would walk into the house and I would go, oh, you're working with a means today. And he's like, how do you know? I'm like, the smell just came ahead of you into the house. Go take a shower. Right? <laughs> um, but I could identify the chemicals he'd been working with in the lab because I have a particularly refined sense of smell. And psychic senses are kind of similar to that. And you'll notice the listeners won't because they're getting audio, but you can see that I have glasses. My eyesight is my weakest sense. I need glasses to see. And in fact, I had surgery so that I could at least see a little bit better without my glasses. I had gotten to the point that my focal distance was about four and a half inches from the end of my nose. I couldn't any longer even read a book. I was so nearsighted without glasses on. So I went and had LASIK and it's not nearly as bad as it was, but it has continued to go downhill. And psychic senses are kind of similar that way. You have stronger channels and you have weaker channels and you can kind of make up for one with the other. And so if you look at my psychic senses, there's psychic hearing, there's psychic seeing, There's psychic feeling, and there is psychic smelling, psychic tasting, and psychic knowing. My very strongest channel is psychic knowing, followed by the feeling aspects of it. So when I dial into someone, I the first things I receive are knowings and the physical impressions of what's happening in their system. And then beyond that, there may be other senses that will come and fill in beyond that. Most often when I say I see or I hear, it's not the literal clairvoyance or clair audience. It's actually the clear knowing. And it's this impression of remembering seeing something or remembering hearing something more than the actual seeing or hearing of it. And so although I will use the words I see or I hear, it's actually a memory of is the texture of the knowledge more than the actual event of doing the seeing. Does that make sense? It does, actually. Occasionally, I will literally have a seeing or a hearing, but it's a much more rare event for me because those are not my strongest psychic channels. I feel I'm very similar to you where I am. my abilities and i may ask you about this after but i feel that i'm also a clear cognizant and i'm very kinesthetic in my body so i can definitely always feel a lot of energy flowing around me and i do have also this clear cognizance of just knowing and it's like well was that my mind was that where's this coming <laughs> and from that's- 
important question. Yeah. And that's the biggest question that Claire Coggs will have. They're like, well, how do I know if it's Mm -hmm. my thought or a divine thought? And I spent a great deal of time parsing through that. And some of it is your practical personal experience with it. But the key that I found for me is when it's a mind thought, something that my mental brain has been working on, uh, it tends to come with a lot of chatter and it tends to come with a lot of emotion attached to it, whether it's fear or hope or anticipation or whatever the thing is, right? That's how I kind of distinguish the mind thoughts from the claircognizant spiritually arriving thoughts, because those kind of thoughts that show up are really neutral. It's just the facts kind of a thought. It's like you wanted to know what led them to that decision. Boom. Here's the picture of what led them to that decision. Um you want to understand what's going on with this person, boom, they have a budding cancer in their left ankle. Oh. And it's really neutral. It's There's no, like, fear or, or hope or expectation attached with it. It's just, boom, there's the thing. And then there might, after a beat, be a reaction from me. It's like, oh, my God, there's a budding cancer in their ankle. Sure. <laughs> uh, but the initial thought is just like, there it is. That's what it is. Right. So you learn to discern. discern so I learned sort of to person. notice. Yeah. What what came with that? Did it come with a bunch of stuff or did I react to it afterwards? Right. And I think uh-huh. I read somewhere that you were also helping people sort of discover their clear abilities. Because obviously, like you said, yes. we're all, we have such different makeups. So, exactly, you know, and I, I believe a lot of my listeners are, are very interested in, in the subject of, you know, maybe some steps that they could take or ways that they can actually start to open and unleash these abilities that are natural within them, right? Do you, yeah, have, do you have any suggestions exactly. for, for something like that? Ooh, I have all kinds of wonderful suggestions oh. for somebody about that. Um, you know, we're raised in this Western culture where it's like, you need to be a self-made man and lift yourself up by your bootstraps and figure all this shit out yourself. I got news for you. You don't get bonus points for that. (laughs) (laughs) And when you're moving into a space, the etheric world, this unseen, um, it's really important to have somebody with you who understands the area you're going into. Whether you have a really active and and engaged spiritual counsel that's working with you or whether you go out and you find some kind of a teacher or mentor, Uh, because there are there are pitfalls in this world, just like there are pitfalls in the 3D world. So that my first thing is books are great. Teachers are better. And I know a lot of us are like, oh, it's going to cost money and I've got all this more important stuff to do. And I feel you. I've I've been down that road before. It's like, yeah, there are times when it's like I really need to buy the groceries. But what I have discovered as I go down this road, when I take a course, when I invest on in an engagement with a, a teacher that has 
landed with me that I know in my core, this, this is the right decision that I need to do this. The money has always shown up to take care of the groceries and the electric. And it's, it's ever been that way since I started down this road. So the first thing I would share is it's really important to have this inter teaching interaction relationship as you're moving into these gifts. It saves you from going down a lot of blind ends and it keeps you out of trouble. Um, now, as far as how I work with people in the world, um, one of the things I discovered as I was coming into my gifts and learning how to deal with them is a lot of teachers out there, not all of them, but a lot of them don't really understand that there's this difference in the strength of channels. Uh, for example, uh, Barbara Brennan was one of the books I first ran into when I was going through this. Uh, Hands of Healing, Hands of Light, I think are a couple of her titles. And she is a very clairvoyant lady. She literally saw the stuff. She's no longer with us, but I mean, she was one of these people. She saw the auras. She didn't have a remembering of what an aura looked like. <laughs> she saw the aura. And so because I tried to follow her work starting out, I felt a little, how to put it, less than broken, messed up that I don't like look at you and, oh, look, there's your aura and it's, you know, pink and white and it has this gray smudgy thing over here on the right. Um, and it took me a while to accept that just knowing that information um, is is fine. It's enough. I I can work with somebody because I know what's going on and I know where it's located, even though it didn't come through my claircognizant or my clairvoyant channel, if that makes sense. And one of the most useful teachers for me actually turned out to be a lady by the name of Rose Rosetree because she does recognize that. And it's like, oh, oh, I'm not broken because I'm not clairvoyant is my strongest <laughs> channel. Oh my God, I'm okay. <laughs> and so that is one thing that I incorporate into my teaching style when I'm taking somebody through something like my Activate Your Spiritual Superpowers workshop. Because you're not broken. You're okay if what your strongest channel is, is clairaudient. Fabulous. We'll work with what that is. You don't have to see it. You can just hear it. You don't have to know it. You can just hear it. That's good. That's fabulous. And it works beautifully. Um, and so I would say that is a strong hallmark of the work that I do. I don't just go, well, we're going to sit and see you today and that's what's going to happen. No, we, we allow and we help you identify what your strongest channels are so that you can really learn to maximize and work with those in the best possible way instead of trying to fit you into a particular box. <laughs> I love that. And, you know, it's funny because I actually have that book too from uh, Barbara Brennan, Hands of Healing. And I, I, and I yeah. love that information. I was like, oh, I wish I could see like her. And just yeah, the isn't that amazing? Saying, I would just love to be oh. like the. And there's so much of that going around the the woo world. It's like mm -hmm. if only I could, you know, hear the crossed over dead people. You're fine, just knowing that that's Grandpa and he's there, and 
and knowing what he has to say. And it's so interesting when you sit in one of these circles, because one of the exercises that I do is I have people stand as mirrors for everybody else so they can see themselves. And what you will find is the people who can see really envy the people who know or the people who can hear because they don't have to pay play charades anymore, you know? And so it's really a cool and affirming exercise to have somebody go, I am so impressed that you can see all that visual stuff. It just is so amazing to me. And then this other person that whose gifts you're admiring so much goes, I am just so impressed and so jealous that you just know this stuff it must be so much easier just to know this stuff (laughs) (laughs) so funny hey so do you still offer these workshops i do periodically offer these workshops and i'm planning to do one towards the end of the year here so if you are interested in learning about that you can i have two doors into my world but this is probably the door you want to go for if that's what you're interested in Uh, i have a quiz that i put together because so many of us are like if only i were gifted like this other person and i call it the what is your number one spiritual superpower quiz and it takes a couple of minutes to go through and we'll identify for you what your particular combination gift set is i don't name your clairvoyance or claircognizance. I don't talk about your clairs. I talk about your larger spiritual gift because we all have a primary function that we come to perform in this world. And so this is in many ways more closely tied to your uh, purpose in this life than your particular clairs. Although we do talk about your particular clairs as well. (laughs) They both kind of go hand in hand perhaps to work your Big, your large spiritual gift to the world. I think a lot of people would be very interested in that because I think probably more and more people, as of myself, I mean, I, I had a bit of a an awakening myself, similar to you, where my gifts and abilities started awakening, and I didn't have anybody to guide me through it. And yeah, I, I was it like, was what, what do I do here? And yeah. It, it, and, and I, don't, I was going to ask you like earlier about, you know, like, how did you handle the fear? And I guess maybe your scientific mind took over and was like, well, that's not real. I don't need to really be fearful of that. Yeah, See, that, I, that's where it started. And then right. after I started to go, well, what if this really is? Then it, and then I started to get a little more creeped out. Right. <laughs> right. Right. So then you, you but actually... I also I also at that point had connected with my spiritual counsel mm-hmm. and I was very good at listening to what they had to tell me. And so when, you know, something would pop up, it's like, okay, guys, do I need to be concerned about this? (laughs) And I would get, you know, the information that I needed. It's like, well, you should probably bubble yourself right now. Or, well, you know, that one's okay. Just don't touch it. That kind of thing. Because one thing I've I've noticed on, you know, I share my my gifts on on tiktok and i notice a lot of people are interested in awakening their awakening their psychic abilities a lot mm-hmm. of people and so i offer grids for that to you know work with their highest good to open these abilities to to first cl- cleanse the pineal gland which could right. have been calcified and and then activating that so i, I think you know 
to to know that there's somebody out there that can actually start to guide you through this because yes it, it's not just all rainbows and and, and butterflies it is definitely not just rainbows and unicorns because mm-hmm. <laughs> i'm sure there's people out there that have opened yeah. their third eye and saw things they don't want to see and said i wish i can close this thing now and yeah. maybe they can't well and well, you can, but it's really hard and it, yeah. it works against your nature. And it's it's like cutting off your arm right. to get out of a trapped place. Um, and that it's not necessary to go down to that extreme to be able to, what I want to say, cope with the things that, that come when you open your senses. Mm-hmm. I guess the other thing I would share with somebody who's like, oh, I want to go do this. Okay. Yes, you you want to make sure that this is a soul desire mm. because it's not always an easy process either. When I went through this process of of releasing the need to be completely scientific and to move into these gifts, you know, they they don't use the analogy of a butterfly lightly. If you think about what it takes to go from this little tiny inchworm to this glorious winged creature. It's it's not like somebody pastes a couple of wings on there and away you go. You hang upside down, you barf all over yourself, you completely liquefy into some goo that you no longer recognize. And then you get put back together in this strange new configuration that has different biological needs than you've ever known in your life. And... It can be a very challenging process to go through. Now, that being said, it is completely and totally worthwhile process to go through. And I will be frank with you, while there are more miracles that occur in your life and you have more influence over what's going on in the world, life continues to be life. It's not like you're going to be exempt from any of the human stuff that goes on. You just have better tools to deal with it. Right. I love that analogy of the butterfly. I definitely resonate with that. So how do you know if it's your soul path versus your mind saying, I think this is cool. I want to try this. Your ego dressing up in spiritual clothes. (laughs) Exactly. Um, The difference for me and your mileage may be different. Um. When it's a soul desire, your soul will arrange and push for you to go down this road. Um, It's not something you're going to have to really strive for. It's something you simply don't need to resist. When it's an ego desire, there's more forcing energy behind it. I'm going to go do this thing. I'm going to go achieve this thing. It's not a curious, it's not a searching, it's not an unfolding, it's a forcing. And that's really the key difference for me. If my mind is in there doing, you know, a 16 point plan with redundancy and Gantt charts and deadlines. Yeah, that's, that's the ego getting in there. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I go, Oh, well, look at this interesting thing that has arrived in my life. And I'm kind of curious about it. Let me let me go there. Mm -hmm. And the timing is right. And the money figures itself out. And it's clearly a soul thing I'm supposed to be doing. 
Does that make sense? It does. It makes a lot of sense. And I think for the listeners out there, you know, it's about just feeling that, listening to that sort of inner inner awareness. But I also see the patterns too, and I see the collective awakening more and more each day through whatever reasons there are, the crazy amount of reasons there are to sort of look within yourself and say, why there am I here? Ton, what am I? Tons, yeah. uh, tons of reasons. It's and unlimited. actually, if we want to go a little bit current events and quasi-political, um, I think there have been a lot of people who've been asking for, there's got to be more than this. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've noticed, and I think it's the law, when you ask for something, especially something big, you need to have your hands empty to receive it. And... You know, I get asked occasionally, it's like, well, why this COVID stuff? And I think a lot of people needed to empty their hands. And we're looking for time to get out of the handcuffs they were in, financial or career or whatever it was, to go a different direction, a dramatically different direction. And when a lot of people ask for a thing, it tends to be a big thing that shows up. Now, in this case, it was pretty nasty looking thing, as many things in our world are when they show up. But it does not mean that it doesn't leave amazing things in its wake. And you see a lot of shifts that have happened in our society as a result of this massive shakeup of this global pandemic whatever your politics of the pandemic have been. Um, the bottom line is, is it has changed a lot of things. A lot of things have shifted. Things that were stuck are now fair game and, and more, much more commonplace than they once were. So I tend to look at these kinds of events from a much larger step back with a much larger lens than I would have in the past. Because we tend to kind of focus on our own little world. But even when you're focusing on your own little world, one of the few hall passes that we get in this life to have time and to sit and think about our lives and what we'd like and where we'd like to go is when you're sick or unemployed. And the pandemic brought a whole bunch of both of that for a whole bunch of people. Now it sucks to be both of those things, but it certainly does give you headspace. And I've been there. <laughs> so I know what that's like, <laughs> and I'm sure a lot of people have too. So, you know, you're not alone if that is the case. And, you know, like, like Zofia says, it's, it's, it's an opportunity to, to empty your hands. I think that's such a beautiful thing. Oh, it's a beautiful way to put it. To empty your hands in order to receive what you've been asking for. Um, yeah, really exactly. Thing to say. And, and I guess one of the things that I will acknowledge when I say that is we are still human beings. Okay. So there is no expectation that when your hands are suddenly emptied, that you're going to be immediately happy about that <laughs> or comfortable <laughs> with it or that it won't be challenging. I want to acknowledge that. 
Um, because I think in the spiritual world, we have a tendency to go, oh, well, you shouldn't feel that way. Oh, no, it's completely human and normal to have that initial reaction. What I would invite you into is some curiosity, because I find that kind of greases the transition into a bigger perspective on what's going on. Yeah. And so what I would say is acknowledge your humanness, acknowledge that human reaction, and then know that there is a bigger space you can eventually step into as well. And just get a little curious about what that space might look like for you. That's beautiful. And that's a much manageable, more manageable step than, well, just take a higher perspective on it. <laughs> <laughs> Easy. <laughs> Easy peasy. No, exactly. No, re really simple but really hard yeah yeah take those yeah. small steps what's what you can handle and don't don't try to overwhelm yourself i, I know it's a i know that's something that i have done uh, i'll be honest i have oh, yeah. I've done the opposite of taking those small steps i jump into things and that's kind of been my makeup and you know much to the detriment <laughs> sometimes of of myself right like it would probably would have been yeah. better if i had you know managed it in, in manageable chunks but um you know my recommendation is for sure is, is to take it in in what you can handle and be realistic with yourself because yeah. we're still human, right? We're still exactly. have, have to, to live this life in the best way that we and can. We're going to remain human. That's why we came here is to be human and yet to expand at the same time. So yeah, I would invite you to uh, embrace your humanity, be some, be compassionate with yourself mm -hmm. uh, and continue still to strive for the higher perspective, taking the higher path, maintaining a higher vibration when it's possible. Uh, because mm -hmm. that does make life a lot more easier to work with and to cope with. Uh, but don't get down on yourself if you're having a reaction moment, because it's important to have reaction moments too. Those emotions are messengers and they bring us important information. And so you should never try to shut them down or shut them out or ignore them or put them in boxes. Uh, it's far better to be with whatever it is, whatever that emotion is. And I know a lot of them are uncomfortable and unpleasant and a lot of un sort of things. Uh, but they don't last near as long as you imagine they might when you actually just sit in their presence in an accepting sort of way and go, all right, what are you here to tell me? What is the message you're bringing me? And at some point, they've delivered their message and they disperse. You don't have to push them out. You don't have to struggle against them. They just eventually disperse when you just allow them to be and to deliver their message. Well, you don't resist. Yeah. Just allow. Just, just allow. It is what it is. Yeah. You don't have to take any kind of particular action on an emotion in that moment. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that, that we get trained into is, well, if I'm feeling something or some kind of way, I got to do something, take some action on it in that moment. You don't have to. You can yeah. just allow that reaction to be and then decide farther down the road, okay, what, what action is appropriate? There are very few situations where you just need to react back. Mm -hmm. I love that. You know, it's really been an absolutely fascinating conversation. 
and I'm sure I can talk the rest of the uh, the rest of the day here. To oh God, yeah. But we're, we're coming <laughs> we'll to have that. a six-hour episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, break it up into five or six parts. Oh, I don't think I told anyone where they could go find the superpower quiz. I should probably do that before we wrap up. Yeah, and also so, too, don't don't worry because I'll also take that information yeah. from you after after the show, and I'll be sure to put that in the podcast podcast notes. But I'm just going to say, go ahead and take the floor. And if there's anything you want to say to the audience, please go ahead and do that. Beautiful. So there are two world, two doors into Zofia Land, and the first one is the Superpower Quiz. You can find that at superpowerquiz.us. It's a really nice door to go through to get to know a little something more about yourself. You can get into Zofia Land, get some of the emails and information that I send out, be notified of the fun and games that are coming up, like the Superpower Workshop. Um, so it's a nice place to kind of get to know Zofia before you decide if she's your cup of tea or not. And there are probably some of you out there also who are like, oh, full body chills. This is the lady I need to be talking to. I have a door for you as well. You can go to bookzofiacoffeechat.com. And what I offer in that door is a 20-minute conversation with me. I don't put any walls around what that conversation is uh, because there are all kinds of reasons that people feel like, you know, she's the one I need to connect with. Uh, what I will do is probably offer you some way to actually work with me in a customized sort of fashion. And I also offer, what do I want to say? Suggestions for what you can do on your own as well. So regardless of what the conversation is, you'll leave with something that is useful. Beautiful. And I'll be sure to leave all that information in the podcast notes below. So I just want to thank truly from the bottom of my heart for the time that uh, Sophia has spent with me. It's just been fascinating to learn about her path and how she got to where she is. Just a fascinating, wonderful, lovely being. Thank you so much, Sophia. Thank you so much for having me. It has been my absolute honor and pleasure. And I appreciate you sharing your world with me as well. Mm-hmm.